back for the third and final installment of our series of science talk interviews with the scientists and other creative members of the team at Blue Sky Studios. Their latest venture, Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, featuring the voices of Ray Romano, John Leguizamo, Dennis Leary, and Queen Latifah, is now playing everywhere. In this episode, we'll hear from art director Mike Knapp, head of lighting Andrew Bedini, and co-director Mike Thurmeyer. First up, Mike Knapp. Well, here at Blue Sky, the art director um, is works with the directors and the producers as, as they we figure out the look of the movie. And so my responsibility is sort of overseeing the development of the artwork for the look of the movie, sometimes on a good day, able to contribute some artwork as well when time allows, um, but working with a team of designers and color artists whose artwork then gets passed down um, downstream uh, among like modeling, layout, assembly, materials, lighting, um, and helps... Uh, kind of explain to those departments what we're aiming for in terms of the look of certain sequences or the ideas behind certain sequences. Um, so we design the sets. We, uh, you know, come up with the color palette for the, the film. Um, you know, I, I create a color script that sort of maps out how the color is going to change from sequence to sequence to, you know, kind of help the, uh, the emotional beats of each sequence. The color helps support that or time of day, things like that. Um, we provide a lot of photo reference to different departments to kind of, you know, when we are referencing reality, um, we, we do paintings that accompany photo reference to say, okay, this is, these are the ideas of like lichens and moss on the ground, mm-hmm. but then we'll do paintings of, okay, but this is how we want to interpret them. So we create artwork to kind of convey the interpretations of those things. And then, uh, we work, you know, um, very collaboratively with the, uh, with the other departments to, uh, kind of help translate those visuals into, into the final film. So for the audience for Scientific American, you know, it's the real science-interested audience, lichens, symbiotic relationships there, the algae and the fungus living together in harmony and peace. You you have to come from a, a starting point. You must actually study the way real lichens look and then decide how you want to alter that to make it work in your world. We do a lot of, um, you know, photo research Looking at, you know, the Ice Age world might have more, you know, fungi growing on the base of the pine trees or, or things like that. When we get down into the dinosaurs world, it becomes more, you know, more moisture, uh, water building up on the limestone and then feeding into the, the lichens that are growing on the surface. And, and, and so we try to find elements that are appropriate, as, as appropriate as possible to, um, this fantastic world, but still you know, we try to take our cues from, from reality and nature. We'll do fantastical things and, and sometimes other, you know, the, the, the more, uh, scientific background, um, members of, of our, our studio will totally call us on it and, and we're like, yeah, you know, that's kind of, uh, that would never happen or never work. We sometimes push things a little bit if it, you know, creatively helps kind of make something a little more fantastic or, or is needed for a desired effect. Um, but for the most part, we try to take our cues from nature and, uh, and, and, and some some thought of science in in this process, so that there's a, a logic to the world that that's works and is supported by the different departments along the way. So, other than the obvious one of dinosaurs and mammoths in the occupying the same world at the same time, what kind of things did you get called on though, in the context of you know the story you're telling? Well, in this case, um, a lot of the uh, the plants in the dinosaurs world uh you know initially we started pulling plants that we like the look of but then we have um uh, one of our members of the modeling department studied 
you know, paleontology and, and dinosaurs in particular, but also a lot of the, the plants at that time. And so he started leading us in, you know, a better direction in terms of what would be more historically accurate and, uh, and what kind of organisms, you know, thrived then, what they looked like, and even what families of those plants still survive today and what we could look at for, for better reference. Because there's a lot of, you know, drawings from uh, scientific journals and, and such from, you know, over the centuries, really. But um, it's hard to find, uh, in some cases, very distinct reference to explain to the other departments of what these things look like when you get up close with a, a camera. You know, what's the surface of this leaf look like? Mm-hmm. How pulpy is the stem? You know, what, what's the material of this particular, you know, plant? Um, so they help point us in some good directions to, uh, you know, ground us a little more in uh, quote unquote reality, you know, for this world that the plant survived along with the dinosaurs underground. And then we tried to have some kind of logic to the world that the dinosaur survived in that it got, it's sort of like a giant cavern. You know, that, uh, got covered in ice at some point, but the heat from volcanic activity deep underground has helped melt out this, this huge space that became this little troposphere, you know, that the, that the dinosaurs have, have lived in and, and it's become its own self-sustaining, you know, ecological system. So we tried to find some court, sort of fantastic logic within there to help us along with the bigger ideas. And then using the, the ice roof is also sort of a diffused light source that the sun is, you know, coming through and, and, uh, cause we didn't want to set the movie underground and feel like you were in a cave the entire time. We wanted to have a little more range than that. But so those sorts of things, there was a lot of people, uh, you know, asking questions and, and, uh, raising flags and then us, having to, you know, figure out a decent answer or discuss with them, like, what a possible solution might be and, and those sorts of things. So, Questions and flags from a scientific viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And, and helping, helping us, forcing us to, to, to find a, a more reasonable logic because it just makes you buy into the world more when you feel like, you know, it, it, it has some sense of reality to it. It's not realism. Like, from my artistic standpoint... I'm not so much interested in realism as I am in a naturalistic feel. And when it feels natural, it can be heavily stylized and fantastical, but you still buy it. And that's, that's really what, you know, we were, we were aiming for here. That can really jar some people so that, you know, the plant stuff, as you were talking about, that could really jar people who actually yeah. would, would notice something like that. Well, you know, we, the, to get a lush, dense, vegetated area, you know, we've got technology that can do grass. But there was no grass at that time. So we tried to find alternatives to that to still make it feel lush. So the lichen becomes sort of like your base coat of paint to some extent. And then we use lots of different varieties of ferns and smaller cycads and, and equisetum and, uh, and, and tried to use those sorts of, of plant life to, to populate the lower ground. And then we started getting into the, the hanging mosses and, and, uh, the overgrown plants, the parasitic plants growing on the larger trees. And then that starts to really get some life to it and feels like, you know, these plants are thriving on and around these other larger plants that become sort of the, the anchors to the world. And so what you're saying is this movie is really for paleobotanists 
They're, they're the ones who are really going to enjoy it. Specifically for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, no, we'll, we'll, we'll probably have driven them crazy by the time they've they've watched the film. But um, hopefully, they'll appreciate the effort and the pain and embarrassment that we went through in in you know going through this entire process. But uh, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Next, I spoke with the lighting designer Andrew Bedini. You know, I know, or at least I think I know, what a lighting a lighting designer does, you know, on Broadway or or in a, a live action film. But what does what does that mean to be the lighting person in in an animated film? Well, basically, um, the way it, it's it's very similar, actually. Um, it just translates directly into a a computer graphic three D environment. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're working with precise measurements, you're working with, uh, realistic scales, but it's all just kept within the computer. Um, you know, typically we'll work within a set, you know, that, you know, that needs a sun in it, um, you know, bounce lights, uh, you know, fill lights, typically what would happen in a live action set. If, uh, if it was a interior setting, we'd be putting lights inside of lamps and things like that to just create the realism. Um, but what separates us in terms of, uh, you know, our competitors, um, such as Pixar and DreamWorks, uh, is that we render everything with 100% uh, ray tracing. And we've always been doing that. So that's, a, that's, that's a pretty much a Blue Sky exclusive. Um, and what really sets us apart is the accuracy that that provides. It really creates a real-world lighting scenario for the lighting artist to, to work with. And uh, not only uh, does it provide a superior look, but it actually makes it much easier for the artist to work with. Uh, for example, um, when we're, you know, working with, uh, you know, shadows and, and things of that nature, basically we just have to set, you know, a, a radius for light, you know, how wide it is, and the shadow is automatically calculated. Um, a lot of uh, differences with, uh, you know, some other renders is that, you know, that stuff has to be processed independently and, you know, somebody has to pick up on that and work with that as a, as a special uh, treatment. With, at Blue Sky's lighting pipeline, it's all automatic. And that's uh, one of the tremendous benefits. Um, another thing that we've been working on over the years and we uh, keep implementing more and more as we move forward with our projects is we've been, uh, we've been implementing a technique called radiosity more and more. And basically... Um, Radiosity is like almost, I guess you could best describe as the next level version of ray tracing. You know, as I was explaining before, we get um, a lot of things like reflections and uh, correct shadowing all automatic with ray tracing. What radiosity brings is is bouncing color. Um, so essentially, let's say you had uh, somebody with a red T-shirt walk up to a white wall. Um, you'd essentially get that red cast on there. And when it's implemented in an entire set and with things within close proximity, it just makes everything look very real. The software to do that was all developed here? Absolutely. Um, it's very interesting. Um, the, the ray tracing technique, um, was basically built, you know, in the, in the eighties here at Blue Sky. Um, and it's pretty much unchanged ever since. And it just so happens that the code for radiosity was also built, um, around the same time it's just it was completely impractical in the 80s from a from a processing from a processing power point of view to implement it you know uh, a frame that takes us maybe 10 hours to process for a film 
back in the 80s would have taken like 12,000 years. Yeah, yeah, like 12, 12, 12 to 15 days. So, um, so that's one of the reasons why as we're stepping further and further into, uh, you know, um, these, uh, these new technologies, uh, you know, processing power counts so much in terms of what we can put up on the screen. I think it's very important for the audience member. I, you know, I think there's a lot of voodoo that, you know, people just say, oh, it's just magic and it gets thrown up on the screen. But I think it's very important, uh, especially for when kids go and see films like this, that they realize that stuff that they're, that they're seeing on the screen, basically their home computer is capable of doing this work now. Um, and one of the things, uh, you know, my, a lot of times, uh, I spend a good amount of time, uh, in the, the educational, uh, environment as well. And I really, I personally believe that, you know, if, if, if you have a budding animator at home or a budding, you know, lighting technical director, get them some software. And, and, and it's very easy. Kids are, are, you know, they're very inquisitive and they can learn this stuff for themselves very easily. Um, and I've always pushed, like, with my nephew, I've got him doing stuff and he's like 11 years old. And, you know, it's, it's not a far stretch to get into this kind of uh, line of work, uh, especially if you get your, your children trained early. We're talking just, you know, a regular home PC or is it PC or yeah, absolutely yeah. not PC or Mac. Um, and there's a lot of software that can be downloaded for and free, free software, free software. Yes, absolutely. Um, that, that that teaches the fundamentals of this kind of stuff. And uh, you know, it's it's not going to give you the pristine technology that a studio like ours has, but um, it can give you the fundamentals to create some pretty amazing looking imagery. And uh, you know, it's. We, we've definitely seen the talent pool become younger and younger. You know, back when I first got into the industry uh, 13, 14 years ago, you know, as somebody that had a master's degree in computer science and, you know, you went through several, you know, degrees to get here, you know, we're hiring people right out of high school now. Um, you know, uh, a friend of mine uh, who works down at Peter Jackson's company, Weta, there's three brothers that are working there right now. They're, they're six years old. Oh, no, no, they're not six years old. Um, but, uh, you know, they basically, uh, the youngest brother was, uh, barely in high school when he started working at, at Weta. And, uh, it's just a, just an amazing thing what they're, what they're able to do. Finally, I talked with co-director Mike Thurmeyer, first in his office. Mike started out as an animator. When you, when most people think of an animator, mm-hmm. I, I bet they still think of somebody who's drawing maybe on cells. Yeah, you'd yeah. be surprised how how often. I mean, and, and people that are not these are not dumb people; these educated yeah. people. But they ask me like, "So you you guys draw every frame?" And then I had the best question I had was, "Now that it's in stereo, yeah. like people have a rudimentary knowledge of knowing it's two two uh, two camera shooting." So like, you guys draw the same image twice right. on the computer. Off. <laughs> yeah. So what is it you really do day to day as you animate? Well, as, as an animator, I mean, you know, in the Disney days or the traditional days, I mean, um, everything kind of rested on the animator, the, the design, the, the line work, the motion. Um, you know, the backgrounds were drawn by the layout team or the background department. Um, but now, I mean, you know, CG is much more complicated. There's many more steps in the... Um, in the pipeline. So you start with the, the paper design by the design department. They do the drawings, and then you go to modeling and sculpting. Um, and then it's built by modelers. Like the CG geometry is built in three-dimensional space in the computer and program called Maya. Um, and, and so that has to be built by, by separate artists, and then it has to become um, what we call rigged, which is you sort of pull, put in control points 
um, you know, for arms, fingers, all that stuff has to be kind of custom built and you have to make sure the geometry deforms nicely when you're moving that. Um, all that stuff that comes before it gets brought to the animators and they're kind of given this model. It's like having a puppet. Mm-hmm. And um, so nowadays the animators are generally responsible for animating um, the puppet, um, the characters. Anything you see moving on screen that's uh, that's character-based um, will be will be handled by the animation team. Are there databases of these kind of, of uh, physiological... Uh, forms yet, or do you actually mm. do you talk to anatomy experts? What? How well, do you get it to be the way you want it to that's be? That's a that's a good question. I mean, you know, generally the films we've done here at Blue Sky are not going for complete right. naturalism. So, I mean, it, there's definitely more of a cartoon element to it, um, and that's just based on your eye and you know taste and stuff like that. Good. But, but even that being said, I mean, we still look at um, we look at a lot of footage of stuff like say in our previous films, and in this one we've done elephant. Stuff, mammoth, elephant. So we'll, you know, we'll go to the Natural History Museum. We'll see the stuff in person. We'll see the size and scope. Um, we'll talk to, you know, experts. Go to the zoo. You know, you look at a lot of footage. Um, you know, and go frame by frame through the footage and try and understand how the uh, the gate is working. And we use all that and then create an abstraction of that that, that works for for our stuff. Um, on our next film, um, which has been announced, it's called Rio. Um, there's humans. So, which is the first time we've really done, you know, humans as like the, the lead characters. Um, and, uh, so there's a lot of work going on right now of, um, looking at anatomy. I think, uh, Jimbo, one of the lead animators, um, brought in life drawing model and, uh, set up a camera and just had her go through all these motions, like jaw movements, mm-hmm. neck movements, head movements, and, you know, very, very localized to, to see what the muscles are doing and, um, it's an, I don't think it's super important for us to know exactly what's going on physically underneath. You don't need to know how many muscles are doing that. Sure. But a, but a, a rough general knowledge. And, you know, the rigging department, the guys that put all the controls in there, um, that's sort of their job to work with the animators and come up with the best appealing-looking stuff for that. I remember in uh, in Ice Age 2 mm-hmm. when the, the whole herd of mammoths... Yep. walks onto the screen. Yeah, uh, the, just the the hugeness and the yeah. the slow, you know, kind of stately movement. Yeah, yeah. So was that something that you you really did study yeah. the animals, or was that more just the way you wanted it to? You definitely. Be? It's funny it, it, for a scene of like all those mammoths. We actually took the main mammoth, Manny, and created derivative versions of him, changing the model size, all that kind of stuff, to create enough different. Characters, um, and we have at Blue Sky um, something we call BSS Anim, and uh, it's sort of a tool where you can you can do an animation on a character, and save out that data as a file, mm-hmm. and then so if you if you have a scene where a character is just walking in, you can import that animation back onto a character, so you don't have to start from scratch every right. single time because it's very time consuming. But yeah, you think about all that stuff when you're animating, but ultimately you have a camera set up, you're pointing a certain direction, it just needs to look good. From that, from that camera angle, and, and you just so you're just going for feeling. So a lot of times you throw reality out the window and mm-hmm. go for whatever looks good. Right. Yeah. As a co-director now mm-hmm. on the next film, how do your responsibilities change from being the lead animator? Uh, well, going from Ice Age two to Ice Age three. Well, I, w- I did Horton in between. Okay. I was a, I was a supervising animator on Horton, and as soon as it was like a week after I was done, that Carlos was like, "All right, you got to come over." It's it's incredibly different. I mean, you know, animation as a department is a huge step in the pipeline, but it's still only one department. Um, when you move to uh, to co-directing, you, you world completely opens up for directing with, with Carlos, and you, and you have to see every every step of the pipeline from 
the pages that are being written by the writers mm -hmm. and working with the producers. And will you be at the recording sessions with yeah, the actors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, we split it up. I mean, Carlos would definitely go. He was the main director, so he would, he would always be there. Sometimes I would be there, sometimes I wouldn't, depending on the needs of the studio at the time. Mm -hmm. Like, if there's a lot of meetings or I need to, needed to work with, with layout uh, on a particular sequence because I had to get the cameras approved. Um, but yeah, it's, the, the scope is, is huge. And, you know, keeping your, your mind on absolutely everything that's going on in the movie, you have to be able to answer every single question from, you know, 350 people in the studio. And they all, and they can't move until you know what to tell them. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it was, it was staggering. But it, creatively, it was interesting because as a supervising animator, I wasn't actually doing that much animation. I was just kind of keeping tabs on, on all the other animators. So creatively, I was starting to like lose steam and, and I wasn't as interested. Um, even though it was fun, it was great to work with people. I, I, I didn't have anything that was like, I did this little piece of film. Whereas an animator, you can point to something and say, oh, I did that. Right. Or like Hugo did the, the lava stuff in, um, in a sequence and he could say, like, I did that lava. Right. And, um, and it looks great. So, but as a supervisor, you're like, oh, I helped these guys do it, but I can't put anything on my show reel. I can't take credit. Um, as a director, you, you, I feel like you get back some of that creativity mm -hmm. because you can say, oh, I remember when we came up with that idea for that sequence. And I remember working with the story guys or working with the editorial. Or, and so even though you're not doing the work creatively, you're definitely, um, it's definitely a bigger sense of involvement. We then went over to a small screening room to see some clips from the movie where I asked him about his early influences. Did you watch Tron when you were a kid? And did it oh, inspire yeah. you? Yeah, well, I mean, I was pretty young. I was maybe seven. But, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, I wasn't, I wasn't that impressed with, uh, with computer graphics for a long time. Um, you know, it was always, it was always good reason. Yeah, it you seemed kind of quirky Trump, and right. weird, and um, and I appreciate it on the geek level. But um, but as an artist, and you know, and I didn't even know I wanted to be an animator really till till later in high school. I, I drew a lot, but I didn't really realize it could be a career. Um, I went for traditional animation. I went to school in, in uh, Oakville, Ontario, in Canada, to uh, to Sheridan um, for traditional animation. And and you know, around that time, I mean, Jurassic Park had come out and completely blew my mind. Like I could not believe what I was seeing. But I still wanted to do cartoon stuff, and then Toy Story came out, and uh, I was like, man, like this is so much fun. Like This is what I want to do, so that kind of turned me around. Um, and then I came to Blue Sky. Well, actually, Blue Sky interviewed me at Sheridan. I didn't know anything about computer animation. Um, had, I'd never even sent an email, They're, but they were like, don't worry, we can train you. Like, And so I came down, and they were, they were awesome. Actually, I can remember the moment where the computer animation clicked in my head, because I didn't really know anything about it. But uh, one of the animators, um, his name was Steve Tukowski, he sat me down at his desk, and they were on um, on uh, those silicon graphics machines. And he's like, well, here, this is computer animation. And he just he created a sphere and then did a bouncing ball. And the great thing about a bouncing ball test in computer animation is the graphic of the of the, the XYZ data in, in, in on the, the graph editor it looks exactly like you would imagine. It looks like the path of a bouncing ball. Mm -hmm. So he showed me, okay, here's the, the translate Y, which means the up and down movement, and the, the forward movement is a Z. And so he, he drew this graph, and I saw the ball bounce, and it was just like, like the light went on, clicked in my head. I was like, oh, I get it. So, um, and that kind of began my, my training in the computer animation. So. It's all applied mathematics. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. I know nothing about mathematics, but uh, luckily they have these nice fancy interfaces where you can, uh, right. it, it feels intuitive. Somebody else so. made it so that it works for you. Yeah, there's a lot of math underneath to make sure it's very user-friendly. Then we put on the glasses and started looking at some images. Looking at some 3D here, and it's uh, pretty good 3D. Yeah, the 3D, you know, the approach we took was, um, I mean, ultimately you have to make the film 
You have to think about the 2D theaters because really, you know, out of 8,000 screens, I mean, only 1,500 are, are 3D. Um, but our approach wasn't to, like, throw stuff right at your face and, you know, and, and, and poke your eyes out with, with, uh, right. with stuff. We want, I like the idea when some stuff pulls forward, but really you feel like you're looking into a window mm-hmm. of, uh, of this world. So sort of that, that was sort of the approach. You know, and we learned a lot of things along the way. <laughs> it is the, the famous squirrel that uh, is always after the acorn. Yeah. It's just sort of erupted out of the screen. I don't know. I wasn't sold on 3D for a long time, but, you know, the more we started doing it, uh, doing it the more I kind of felt like it was a nice, um, I don't know. It just It's like, I've said this in other interviews, but I feel like it's like having another color to paint with, like a brand new color. It just adds, you know, a dimension you didn't have before, and it, and it kind of gives you a slightly different feel. So this, my personal, one of my personal favorite parts of the movie, because I think this is, when I, when I came on the project, there wasn't, the third act hadn't really been developed, second act, third act. Um, and so I worked with, um, with the story guys and the co-editor. And so our first sequence that we really delved into was, uh, this air battle sequence, which is the, a new character, this weasel riding on the back of this pterodactyl. Unfortunately, we don't have, we don't have sound for this one. But you know, it's funny to me too, like this, this sequence works great in 3D, but it's often surprising to me that the shots that I, that I don't expect to work great in, in 3D stereoscopic, um, do like particularly quiet shots, shots of just characters sitting around or standing in a circle. I don't know. You just get the sense of depth and, and um, environment. It's really, it's really interesting. I mean, this Ice Age three is much bigger a film than um, the previous two, I would say, and all the stuff we've developed through the through the five movies we've done. Uh, I think you know is all on display. I mean, especially when you compare it to the first movie, which was you know definitely limited on time and budget and experience. Really, um, it was. It was so graphic and simple, and we've tried to retain the graphic look, the design sense, but um, completely opened up the uh, the world. That became such a big hit, you were able to then yeah. really open out. Oh, yeah. I mean, Blue Sky basically was built on on that first movie, and uh, it allowed us to, um, to keep the doors open and keep going. I mean, robots. Um, I think robots is actually underappreciated from a visual standpoint. I think that movie... If you go back and watch it, and I hope they release it on Blu-ray soon, um, the materials and the lighting are absolutely outstanding and, like, way ahead of their time. I mean, just from a visual standpoint and technical, it's uh, it's really, really impressive. And then, of course, it, it led to Ice Age 2, which was huge. I mean, I think it was one of the, other than Pirates of the Caribbean, I think it was the highest or the most profitable movie of 2006, $650 million worldwide um, on, a, on a pretty modest budget. Um, you know, then we did Horton, which was uh, which was very successful, and we learned a lot on Horton. It really pushed our uh, character rigging um, to a whole new level, and, and now um, Ice Age three, six hundred fifty. That, that's Ron Howard numbers. There. That's pretty huge. I mean, that's you know more than The Incredibles, more than Wall-E, more than you know. We're not, is, Blue Sky is very recognized internationally, which is really funny to me. Like I, I go anywhere internationally, it's like we're we're heroes. Uh, domestically, we're still well loved, but not you know Pixar is the king of the. King of the Jungle, so um, it's interesting. And you know, I'm not saying I love Pixar; they did great. But sure, uh, sure. so uh, you know, this was actually uh, I don't know how much you know about the whole the storyline or anything like that with no, the I've dinosaurs. Seen the first two. Okay, but, well, uh, this one of this one. Okay, well, you're gonna you know before we run this, I just want to say because you know, we've gotten a lot of questions. Everybody's like, oh, what, what are their dinosaurs doing in the Ice Age? You know, this is are you guys crazy? What's wrong with you? Why are um, you playing into the creationist's hands? I know <laughs> exactly, but. Uh, so here's the thing. When I when I first heard the concept of dinosaurs, when Carlos pitched the idea, I was like, "What? Like, what are you talking about?" Um, but it it dawned on me that um, what they what we were trying to create here was was like a, a genre movie, 
um, uh, King Kong. You know, they go to Skull Island, and there's these crazy dinosaurs and whatever uh, during the center of the Earth. So for me, I was excited because it became like we took this this, this, this comedy formula um, of the first two movies, which is basically a road movie with some laughs, and you know, you throw this action you know genre element onto it, um, and that's basically what we got. And I mean, it's a very similar storyline. These dinosaurs come up from um, you know the this underground subterranean world of extinct creatures um, when Sid um, you know inadvertently takes some dino eggs and uh, what we're going to see here is the mama dinosaur coming back up to kind of reclaim her babies Sid, give them to her she's their mother how do I know she's their mother what do you want a birth certificate she's a dinosaur why put in the blood sweat and tears to raise them for a day go back and So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we had to create a dinosaur that was impressive for people to look at. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's still a kid's movie. So we, we had to find ways to give her a little bit of character here and there, which is, you know, you saw the, the shot where her kind of eyebrow went up. Um, so it's been, you know, an interesting balance. That's it for our special series looking at the applied math and science that goes on at Blue Sky Studios, the home of the Ice Age series of animated films. Thanks to everybody at Blue Sky for the access they gave us. We'll be back with our usual format in the next episode. Meanwhile, for all your latest science news, visit our website, www.scientificamerican.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. an entire world and we didn't even know it.